Welcome to Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. This episode is part four of our Better Edge Parts and Labor mini-series. Welcome to Parts and Labor, a roundtable discussion with the OBGYN experts here at Northwestern Medicine. My name is Dr. Angela Chaudhary, and I'm a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon and serve as Chief of Gynecology and Gynecologic Surgery here at Northwestern Medicine. I will be your host today discussing uterine fibroids and the research that's gotten us to where we are today in our understanding of what causes them and how to treat them. So first off, let's meet our very esteemed panel today. First up, Dr. Bulin, our John J. Shah, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Chair of the Department of OBGYN here at Northwestern Medicine. He's a professor of both reproductive science and reproductive me uh, medicine and is a member of the National Academy of Medicine. He runs the Bulin Lab here at Northwestern University, which we'll get to hear more about. Dr. Julie Kim, the Susie Y. Hung Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Reproductive Science and Medicine at Northwestern University, is the co-director of the Center for Reproductive Sciences at Northwestern and runs the Kim Lab here at the university. Dr. Malad, the Albert B. Gerby Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Division Chief of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery here at Northwestern Medicine. Dr. Malad is board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility with a focused practice designation in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and has done a number of different research work surrounding fertility, fibroids, and patient reported outcomes. Dr. Bob Vogelzang, the Albert Nemchek Education Professor of Radiology here at the Department of Radiology at Northwestern Medicine with a focus on vascular and interventional radiology. He's a past president of the Society of Interventional Radiology and has published on uterine artery embolization for many, many years, including on multimodal therapy for uterine fibroids. So let's begin by better understanding the research landscape here at Northwestern. Dr. Bulin, you've spent much of your academic career performing research on steroid hormone production and action and how it impacts disease with a focus on uterine fibroids and endometriosis. Now, I pulled that off your, your Feinberg University panel, but what I did really find out was that the Bulin Lab is the most highly funded NIH lab in the country doing research on uterine fibroids and endometriosis. Can you share with our audience what kind of work you're doing in the lab? Thank you, Dr. Chowdhury. Um, I, I will start with endometriosis. First, it's important to understand the uh, clinics, clinical aspects of this disease. Endometriosis uh, is caused by backward menstruation of blood and endometrial material every month. Uh, that goes through the tubes and lands in abdominal tissues. Although almost all women experience this backward menstruation, only 10% of women develop endometriosis, which is an inflammatory condition in which these endometrial tissues grow on bowel and other peritoneal surfaces and cause enormous amounts of pain and infertility. So we ask, what is uh, special about this 10% women? And we found that their normally located uh, inner lining of the uterus, which is called endometrium, is molecularly abnormal. For example, we discovered this enzyme called aromatase that makes estrogen. And 
And what separates endometriosis from other inflammatory conditions, such as uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, would be it, its dependence on estrogen for inflammation. We found that endometriosis tissue is very devious. It makes its own estrogen through the use of this aromatase enzyme. When we targeted aromatase, we found that uh, these patients' pain symptoms were alleviated. Therefore, our basic research almost like single-handedly brought aromatase inhibitors to the um, treatment of endometriosis. I mean, that's amazing, Dr. Bolin. When we talk about endometriosis, and, and that's a whole other podcast, by the way, I'm going to bring you back for that one. But, you know, when we talk about endometriosis and aromatase inhibitors, we think about you know, breast cancer and some of these other things. And the fact that we're now using some of these therapies because of the research done in your lab for treatment of endometriosis is really just amazing. I, I think that we can't highlight enough the importance of the work you're doing in the lab. So now, how did you get interested in uterine fibroids and what sort of work are you doing around that? Uterine fibroids is another form of uterine disease. In fact, it's the most common uterine disease as our... Um, surgeon colleagues and interventional radiologist colleagues will uh, agree, we perform more than uh, 200,000 hysterectomies and some 40,000 um, interventional radiology procedures every year in the U.S. only for uterine fibroids. I don't think any other gynecologic disease come close to uterine fibroids for is public health uh, impact. What we found was uh, the normal uh, uh, myometrial, normal muscle cells of the uterus that handles a pregnancy normally responds to this hormone progesterone every month in anticipation that it will handle a pregnancy. This process uh, activates these normal stem cells, but there is a very high rate of mutation among these stem cells. One of these stem cells, if it is hit by a mutation, it just grows and makes its own tumor over the years. And this process is stimulated by progesterone. And I should also point out that, interestingly, although fibroids uh, is not considered a malignant disease. Its uh, steroid profile is almost identical to breast cancer. Whatever um, hormonal treatments we use for breast cancer also do work in fibroids. Therefore, our lab concentrated on these targets over the years. So hearing that and hearing some of the work you did around aromatase with endometriosis and now this <clears throat> current work you're doing around progesterone, what can we expect to see coming out of the lab in the future, Dr. Bullen? What are we going to learn about how we can use progestins to begin to treat fibroids? Because right now, progestins work to can maybe control bleeding, but certainly don't have an impact in shrinking fibroids as far as I know. In fact, progestins aggravate fibroid growth, they make fibroids grow, whereas antiprogestins shrink fibroids. And one antiprogestin that was approved in the EU has been pulled f 
from the market, unfortunately, because of a very rare complication of uh, liver disease. Uh, what we would like to work on is uh, targeting more uh, anti-progestin pathways and develop drugs that do not have such uh, bad side effects. Well, we are really looking forward to that. As a, as a gynecologic surgeon and a patient who counsels patients all about the different options for uterine fibroids, our patients are looking for non-surgical, non-procedural options to really begin to impact the growth of fibroids as well as the symptoms associated with fibroids. So we can't wait to hear more about what's coming out from your lab. I'm going to shift over next to Dr. Kim. Dr. Kim, your lab, from again, what I read on our website, uh, really uh, focuses on progestin mediators of different gynecologic diseases, as Dr. Bullen was mentioning. And in your role in the lab, as well as the co-director of the Center for Reproductive Science, I'd love to hear about some of the work that your lab is doing. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. This is so exciting. Uh, my lab is interested in identifying uh, the molecular mechanisms that cause growth, um, as well as um, development of uterine fibroids. Um, we want to answer the question of why uh, black women are so disproportionately affected by uh, fibroids. Um, and we also want to potentially identify uh, targets that we can develop new treatment therapies for um, that are non-surgical. Um, and so over the years, as you mentioned, I worked with progestins and the role of, of hormones in the growth of fibroids as well as signaling molecules. But I'd love to talk to you about some of the most recent study that we've done in the lab that deals with oxidative stress. Um, so we found that in uterine fibroids, the oxidative stress pathway is overactive and it is involved in potentially causing fibroids to grow as well as the development of fibroids. And so oxidative stress um, is basically a, a phenomenon where there's an imbalance of um, reactive oxygen species and um, mechanisms that detoxify the, the reactive oxygen species. I'm going to call it ROS from now on. Um, and so this is really important um, because um, in fibroids, what we found was that the ROS pathway is overactive. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, ROS, where does it come from? Um, ROS is actually a byproduct of um, a metabolism of oxygen that occurs in every cell of our body. Um, and it's a byproduct, and it's fine because there are mechanisms that detoxify that. But when there's an um, over-preponderance of ROS, um, it can cause um, proliferation of that cell or it can actually cause DNA mutations. And so it's bad. And so we need those detoxifying enzymes. And what we found in fibroids is that um, some of these detoxifying enzymes are not working properly. And so we have this cell where there is a high level of ROS. And so what we find is that um, these cells uh, grow in response to ROS. Um, and, but we also found that because those detoxifying enzymes aren't working very well, if we were to overburden them or challenge them with exogenous ROS or like um, triggers of ROS in the cell, then these cells can actually die or undergo senescence. Um, and so this was a really remarkable finding um, with this knowledge. 
uh, we can now consider something like um, targeting senescent cells, for example. We have drugs on the market right now called senolytics that actually target senescent cells. So if if ROS uh, promotes uh, cells to go undergo senescence, we can then use another drug called senolytics to target them. And so this is the kind of information that we're gathering. Um, the second thing that we're really excited about is that we find that ROS can actually cause mutations in the MED12 gene. And so why is that important? Well, um, studies have shown that um, MED12 is mutated in up to 70% of all fibroids. Um, what does it actually do? Uh, we don't really know yet, but that mutation is associated with fibroid development potentially. And so we've been able to show in the lab that if we treat normal myometrial cells um, with high levels of ROS, uh, for a long time, we can actually cause mutations in the MED12 gene, which is pretty exciting, um, I think. Um, and then finally, um, we've been able to show that members of that oxidative stress pathway are overexpressed in fibroid tumors from black women mm -hmm. compared to white women. Um, and so this is very intriguing. Um, it's the first time we've ever shown a difference between black and white women in terms of their fibroid tumors. And so now we, we can start leveraging this information in terms of, well, um, given the tumor characteristics, does that really um, dictate how we should treat uh, these fibroids and, and whether we can treat fibroids in a more personalized manner? Um, and so that's some of the research that we do in the lab. It's amazing, Dr. Kim, bringing personalized medicine to uterine fibroids. You are like speaking our like gynae surgeon language over here. Um, you know, just as to follow up on some questions, because I'm really fascinated by the work that you're doing and specifically around our, our, our black patients. We, you know, we see 70% uh, of black women have fibroids. And, and, you know, as a clinician, I blame it on the, on the genes, right? I say, well, it runs in the family, right? What does that mean? Well, thank you to you guys actually doing the work to find out what those mutations are, what, you know, what really is happening in the fibroids that maybe our genetic makeup, our, our, family, our family history is really bringing to the problem. I, I guess my question for you is, and I would love your opinions, both of you, about this, because you guys are really getting to the heart of what causes fibroid growth, working both forward and backward to try to figure out how we're going to treat these fibroids. And so many times we have patients that come in who have fibroids and we'll take out 10 fibroids and they're 30. And, uh, you know, it's a, a black patient wants to have a baby in the next few years. And she said, my whole family had my had their uterus out at 35 because they we just grow fibroids right back. What can I do to prevent these fibroids from growing back? And our answer right now is we don't know. We don't know if we can do anything, right, to prevent those fibroids from growing back. I'd love to hear from both of you guys about whether the research that you're currently doing, kind of looking at both the development of fibroids and how to combat the growth of those fibroids, is there going to be something that comes down the line in my lifetime as a clinician that I'm going to be able to share with my patients that they can change? I always think optimistically, and I think, yes. <laughs> um, you know, if we understand the biology of what, how a tumor is formed, I think we can really start targeting that 
mechanism. Um, we have um, so many advanced technologies now, and there's so much that we can do and so many ways that we can uh, look at things that um, I think the important thing is bringing different people together to, to solve a question, um, bring engineers together with the biologists, with the molecular biologists, with the clinicians. Um, and so uh, I think as a group, as a team, um, to answer your question, I think so. Um, I think the biology is really um, giving us real um, interesting clues as to where to look, what to look for, uh, potentially identifying biomarkers, um, risk, et cetera. And... Um <clears throat> From a uh, practical perspective, fibroids occur because of repeated um, cycles of ovulation, uh, because uh, uterus is exposed to both estrogen and progesterone. If we can break the cycle, probably that will really help. The current medications mostly contain estrogen and progestins, but new GnRH antagonists are coming on the market. I am somewhat uh, hopeful that new technologies such as these GnRH antagonists, which do not um, stimulate fibroid growth, might be preventive. However, we have to figure out how to do this without uh, significant side effects. That needs to be worked out. Sounds like you're pulling us into a clinical research study, Dr. Bull, and I heard that in your tone. Um, I, you know, I, I completely agree. And, and I just really want to highlight that, you know, really around the country, everyone talks about how uterine fibroids are not studied enough. We don't know enough information. It's one of the most common diseases out there, as Dr. Bullen mentioned. And we just don't have the information to give our patients to really find targeted therapies. And, and people blame gender bias in our NIH funding. People blame the fact that this is a disease that is a uh, that affects so many black women. And maybe is that is that racially biased in, in the terms for funding for our research. So I really just want to thank the both of you and all of your teams at the Center for Reproductive Science for for really focusing on this disease that clearly is very near and dear to my heart as a gynecologic surgeon and really for my patients as well. So thank you for all, all that work that you do. I'd love to kind of shift the conversation and talk a little bit more about some clinical research that we have happening here at Northwestern Medicine. Um, Dr. Malad, I'd love to start with you. I know you're an avid researcher looking at clinical outcomes, patient-reported outcomes, and you've studied fibroids for much of your career. Can you discuss some of the work that you've done? Well, the Center for Complex Gynecology is uniquely poised to be able to do clinical trials and clinical studies for patients that suffer from fibroids. We, tend, we see thousands of patients every year. And we do nearly a thousand surgeries between the, the four of us, uh, minimally invasive surgeons. And so, uh, and we have a full-time research coordinator to help us with these types of studies. We've tried to use the highest level of research studies in clinical trials using randomized clinical trials as the um, as the, the study design, and we've studied uh, things that improve outcomes and reduce blood loss. So we've done randomized trial looking at uh, transmetic acid at the time of hysterectomy for fibroids. We've done a randomized clinical trial of mesoprostol for myomectomy uh, for uh, um, for looking at blood loss. We've uh, we have a current trial looking at low pressure hysteroscopy. Um, pumps versus traditional 
uh, pressures to see if we can improve outcomes and lower the risk of having to do a second procedure. Uh, we also have a, um, a uh, systematic review looking at mini laparotomy, which is sort of a sweet spot for patients that are undergoing myomectomy. Patients, uh, it's not really, um, an, um, doesn't, it doesn't really follow the same pattern as patients that have um, an abdominal myomectomy. We can do it as an outpatient procedure um, in a couple of hours, send them home the same day, and they have similar outcomes as if they had it done laparoscopically. Um, and then lastly, we have a study right now looking at the use of low-dose carboprost uh, to promote the migration of fibroids uh, intraoperatively during hysteroscopic resection for those types of fibroids that are sort of partially in the cavity but mostly in the wall in order to reduce the need to do a second procedure. So there's a lot going on as far as clinical research at the center, and I think we're uniquely poised nationally to be able to pull these studies off. I think, you know, when I hear about the cadre of research that's coming out of Northwestern, you know, first the basic science and now thinking about all these different uh, clinical outcomes, ways to make procedures for fibroid surgery safer. Uh, you know, it really is an opportunity for our patients to come in, be part of the solution. And, and so many of them want to be part of that solution because they've suffered with uterine fibroids for so long. Anything they can do. Can we give fibroid tissue to Dr. Bullen or Dr. Kim's lab? Can we be a part of this hysteroscopic myomectomy study? If we're making surgeries safer for other people, that's what they really want to do. And, and I think our clinicians are really uniquely poised. And, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Vogelzang because he's been doing fibroid procedures for 20 plus years and, and spent his academic career really researching so many of these topics, both, you know, fibroid therapies with uterine artery embolization as well as multimodal therapy. Dr. Vogelzang, can you share how you've really like had that focus on quality and safety for our patients undergoing these procedures? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would highlight that most of the work we've done has been in conjunction with, uh, with surgeons, especially Dr. Malad at the Center for Complex Gynecology. I'll highlight one area that I think has made a huge impact, which is, I think, still not fully recognized in America, which is the use of MRI to evaluate fibroids. You know, in most of America, ultrasound is still a method that decision-making is based upon, and it's a bad one. It does not tell us what we need, where they are, location, intramural, ca uh, intracavitary, and so on. And uh, we did some early research looking at the impact of preoperative MRI in decision-making. And it influenced decision-making a tremendous amount in terms of a decision for or against myomectomy, a decision for or against embolization. That's an example where I think we've really impacted the practice of gynecology, and it has yet to be fully realized. Uh, and then some of the other areas have been, uh, for Dr. Malad and I, have been in things like looking at our own data on this vexing issue of infertility or fertility preservation, what do you do? Myomectomy or embolization? It's really an open question and the data is very poor. Internally, our data suggests that it's at least equivalent and we can say confidently to our patients as a result, what we're suggesting to you, we have the basis on which to say that and recommend it. And I think our patients are the better for it. 
I completely agree. I mean, I think we hear so much in the community, you can't have an embolization if you want to go on and, and have children in your future. And certainly we all know the FDA guidelines, but we're talking about a procedure that's been FDA approved for over 25 years. We have so much data regarding fertility and pregnancy that is out there just with a no large number of patients that have been treated. And I think it's um, sometimes short-sighted that we can't continue to grow. I love what you said about MRI as well, Dr. Vogelzang, because I completely agree. We have so many colleagues, Dr. Malad and I, around the country who are focused in on different types of ultrasound and getting really, really focused. And I would say probably one of the number one second opinions I get is from patients who failed a hysteroscopic myomectomy or patients who failed a laparoscopic myomectomy because when they were there, they only took out one fibroid and they had another 10 that were bothering them, but they didn't really see them on ultrasound because of shadowing and all those other things. And MRI, we get an MRI and I show them exactly why they're still having the symptoms and it's pretty amazing uh, what patients come back to us with. So, well, I, I really just want to thank all of you for really all the research that you're doing for our patients. Like I mentioned, this is one of those areas that I think is horribly under-researched uh, around the country and around the world. And I'm really, really proud to work at an institution where fibroid research is really forefront of mind. And really, uh, we have some of the top researchers in the country working here. So I'd love to open it up for any final thoughts for our referring colleagues about what's out there for research? How can they get their patients involved? Dr. Milan? I mean, all of our studies are uh, posted uh, online on clinicaltrials.gov, and so we have patients uh, that are finding us on their own. But certainly we would recommend patients being referred into the center as far as uh, being managed for their complex issues, and you know, then, of course, we'll refer them back. I mean, we, it's a very unique center that's mission-driven to be a one-stop shopping for patients that suffer from fibroids or endometriosis. And there's not a, another center in the country that is like, that's like this, maybe even in the world, to have interventional radiology side-by-side -side with minimally invasive surgeons, with pain psychologists, with a PM&R doctor, with physical therapists, with sex therapists, with uh, ultrasound and lab available. I mean, it's really quite a unique situation. And patients uh, realize it, and that's why our patient satisfaction is so high. I would echo that. I think that uh, we are a distinctive entity that I would hope is uh, replicated elsewhere. But for right now, we will take great care of your patients. Uh, they will have cutting-edge research. They'll have the best physicians, best surgeons, best interventional radiologists, and have the best research uh, team on, on it. Fabulous. And I know, Dr. Bullen and Dr. Kim, that my patients always ask, can I donate my uterus to research? I don't need it anymore. Absolutely. We will take it. <laughs> We're sending them your way, okay? And I, I would like to advocate for um, funding for basic research mm. for both uh, fibroids and endometriosis. These are severely, severely understudied diseases compared with other illnesses out there and we should all advocate for them because all new treatments will come from uh, uh, both basic and clinical research studies. 
I 100% agree. I 100% agree. Well, I want to thank everyone for being a part of the podcast today. Uh, I know that our colleagues that are out there listening really learned a lot about what the research landscape is around uterine fibroids here at Northwestern Medicine. And I'm very lucky to work with each and every one of you sitting at this table today uh, and, and all the amazing research that you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. To refer your patient or for more information, please visit our website at breakthroughsforphysicians.nm.org slash OBGYN. That concludes this episode of Better Edge, a Northwestern Medicine podcast for physicians. Please always remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Northwestern Medicine podcasts. 